From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. May the God who is majesty, mercy, and mystery, speak words of life, hope, and healing through these words. I ran across that prayer this week. It's not mine. And the imagery of a God who is majestic, merciful, and mysterious perfectly summed up how I felt about God in this passage. Because for me, this passage ended up being a very jarring reminder that all too often I'm imagining a very small God who kind of is a bit like me. And then I read this and I'm like, oh, wait a second. So today I want to walk us through three thoughts that flowed out of this prayer. And I kind of resisted that because I'm like, it's a poem. And it's not about linear three points. But these are three thoughts that sort of came together for me. So, and they do, they do follow some, somewhat of a flow. So we're going to go with three. First, that God is majestic, merciful, and mysterious. We'll spend some time talking about that. Second, that the discipline of remembering helps us as a community to understand this God better. And third, that this remembering work that we do leads to salvation because salvation belongs to this majestic, merciful, mysterious God alone. So let's start with how we can see God in these three different facets first. In verse 1 and 2, we're off to this really good, familiar start. We see this powerfully comforting image of God listening and answering the cry for help. We're like, wow, he's so merciful. He's answering Jonah even though Jonah ran away. Like, what a good, loving God. And these truths about a merciful God just go down really easy for me, right? They're the ones I cling to. It's like, praise the Lord. He's always listening and answering me whenever I need help. This is so wonderful. And then all of a sudden you hit verse 3 and it's like, whoa, what's happening? You hurled me into the depths? Like, that's not what I was expecting. I want this description of God, like how he's going to rescue Jonah and how amazing it all is. And instead, Jonah spends the next huge chunk talking about how bad everything is and how he's dying. 
and accusing God of sending him to his death. So it's like, what's going on here? God does orchestrate Jonah being swallowed by the fish. God has sent this storm. God did ordain the casting of lots in chapter 1 to single him out on the boat as like the problem. God did allow the sailors to throw him overboard. And God did appoint the fish to swallow him. So it's like, oh yeah, God's response to Jonah's choice to run away is to implement some serious discipline. Like we're seeing here what I would say is the majestic God, the sovereign, the one who is king, who's in charge, someone who commands, and it's done. This is a majestic God. The sea obeys, the dice obey, the sailors obey, the fish obeys, everybody obeys except Jonah. Um, (laughs) So so this gets really uncomfortable for me so quickly because it's really hard for my human brain to square like God's majestic control of the situation in verse 3 with his really attentive mercy in verse 1 and 2. And it's like, how is this going to go together? And I think that's where the mystery comes in. You know, God is mysterious. We can't make this work out perfectly in our brains. But I did try and think of something that would help me make a little more sense of it, and for me, it was the parent-child relationship. And surprise, surprise, you know, I've got three. So sometimes my kids throw these huge tantrums, right? (laughs) And they, like, are screaming to the point where, like, I can't get through to them. So... I may be trying to help comfort them or calm them down, but they, like, can't even hear me. They're, like, flailing and lashing out, and, like, Stuart can do this arching back thing, and, like, he's going to, like, hit his head on something. It's actually dangerous, right? They're either endangering us or endangering themselves in this, like, worked-up emotion. And they're holding everyone else in the room hostage to their emotions. Like, they're just, like, damaging the environment with, like, how intense this is. And so sometimes the best thing that we can do as a parent is just to put them in their room in a safe place until they can actually calm down and say, you just need to be there and not hurt anyone right now. And when they're ready to reconnect, then we can actually talk about what happened. And so it's kind of like God puts Jonah in the fish like we put our kids in time out. Like he just needed to be somewhere where he couldn't hurt anyone else. So that, that was sort of helping me. Obviously, parents aren't perfect. God is perfect. But, and then the you hurled me language. I also was thinking about how this is such strong language because we're reading it from Jonah's perspective. Right? Like, we know what's happened, but each party's perception of what's going on can be really different. So, when we as parents, like, might say, it's a timeout, they might, the kids might say, they're suffering. Like, how dare you put me in my room? How dare you, like, take away dessert? Because our kids can't believe they're experiencing consequences. Like, they forget that they've made a damaging choice, and then instead they're just blaming us for the consequences they're experiencing. So in verse 4 to 6, Jonah is describing the sense of banishment as if God did this to him, in the, but Jonah was the one that ran away. You know, so Jonah's leaving. God's saying, no, you're going to stay with me, but Jonah's experiencing this as banishment. 
So we can see this again, how he is so merciful because God hasn't banished him. Like he's waiting, he's listening, he's attentive to as soon as Jonah's going to pray, we know it's going to happen. He's going to come out of the fish. So God is so merciful and he's just waiting for Jonah. And Jonah's unfortunately like not quick on the uptake. He spends three days in the fish. Like, I don't know about you, but if I think if I got in a fish, I'd be like, help, like the second I got in there. But you realize like Jonah was in this state of despair. Like he wanted to die. He did not want to continue. He asked to be thrown overboard and he didn't know the fish was going to be there to save save him. Essentially, the fish saves him from drowning. So it takes him a couple to figure out that he should ask for help. And he thinks that he is going to die, that he's just waiting to die, to die. And yet God is actually not killing him. God is in the process of saving him. So what looks like punishment from one perspective turns out to be grace. And that is so hard to understand. Like even trying to talk about it now, it just feels like, am I saying this the right way? Because it can get so tough to put these two perspectives together. And it's just one of those ways that we have to realize God is not like us. He's beyond us and we're not perfect and he is. So he can actually hold this justice and mercy and balance in a way that we just can't. And I think one of the reasons that that's really hard is because as adult humans, watching power and control is super nerve-wracking because most humans we know wield power and control so poorly, right? Like every day we're inundated with this news of people who are powerful and in control of things and who are definitely not good, right? So then when we read about God being powerful and in control, it can kind of like, I don't know, it just gives me, it makes me nervous because I forget God is not like us. God is perfect. God is good and powerful. So what is our work with this first point, that God is majestic, merciful, and mysterious? I think our work as the church as a Jesus-following community, is that we have to help each other remember this different narrative. Like, the good news that there's a different reality from the one that we're experiencing every day, we need to emphasize that. You know, we need to be telling each other the truth that God is God, his kingdom is good, it is he is perfectly good, and totally powerful, and even if we can't understand it, let us remind each other of this truth, and especially that this good and powerful God loves us. So I think that's the thing that when we're constantly barraged with all this information about like people who are, good, who are in control and are in power are bad, we as the church, we have to counter that narrative of God is not a human God is not a broken human. God will wield power and control perfectly in a way that is loving to us. So that's something I think that I always need more of a reminder of. I think that's something that we can work with on this point. And I also, I was kind of floored actually as I was studying this because I found so much overlap with the passage that I studied for Hagar when I preached in July because in that passage, 
we're learning about this God who answers and who sees her and who responds to her and who listens and he's a living God and he is capable of saving her. And also we're like, there were some uncomfortable things in that passage where it's like God is not like us. He's going to do some things differently. So whether we're in Genesis or Jonah, like God is showing us who he is in these different facets and we can do good work as the church to remind ourselves of these things that he, he is good, he's a living God, he answers us, but he also does things that can throw us for a loop. And at the same time, he's trustworthy. So my second key thing, I've already said remembering a couple times, but this discipline of remembering, it really stood out to me in this, where Jonah says, as my life was ebbing away, I remembered you Lord. And that's the thing that turns this whole psalm around is that he finally stops going down, down, down into the depths of the sea in despair and suddenly remembers, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. It's like, oh yeah, God. I have a relationship with God. This majestic and merciful and mysterious God knows me and can do something about my situation. And so he remembers the Lord. David White says in his book on calling, to my mind, one of the greatest disciplines of any human life is the discipline of memory, of remembering what is essential in the midst of our business and busyness. And that quote came back to me in this story because it is, this is like the most extreme example you could find. Like, Jonah's going to die until he finally remembers what is essential. God. So I called this sermon Remember to Live because, as one commentator explains too, to remember in the Old Testament, it doesn't just mean like recollecting, like, oh, remember that great time. It means taking a course of action. In this case, Jonah's remembrance is not simply to like think, oh yeah, there's a God. It's to pray for God to deliver him. And the verb remember is used over 200 times in the Bible, and it's basically this plea for reconnection, of coming back together. Sometimes God is saying it to his people. He's asking them to return. He's asking them to repent. And sometimes his people are saying it to him, and they're asking, like Jonah, to be rescued. So this remembering brings life because we reconnect with God. Remembering God is actually what the Psalms are all about. And this prayer that we read is a Psalm, right? It uses the same imagery and phrases from like 13 other Psalms. So if you've read them before, maybe you could even notice some of those stick, like just jump out to you. And it makes sense because the Psalms were the prayer book for the people of God and they sang and they prayed these Psalms and they rehearsed God's past works and they remembered who God was and they remembered who they were because of who God was. So the Psalms were like this memory tool for staying connected with their God and that was like their work of worship that they were like singing and praising God and remembering and that was, like we were just saying, like it helped them to counter the narrative. They were reorienting themselves to this different reality, the truth 
of trusting in God's good kingdom. So Jonah would have had these psalms memorized. And when he finally remembers God, he says, oh yeah, and he uses these familiar words and phrases of this amazing communication tool of the psalms to reconnect, to pray. He crafts his own new prayer right out of other psalms. So what's our work with this second point about remembering? Like, this is a great work for us as a church to do. We can write new prayers too. We can practice remembering. We do it every week, actually. A whole bunch of our church service essentially is oriented around considering God's acts in Scripture, reminding ourselves of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, reflecting on how the Holy Spirit is guiding and protecting prompting us. We can do a lot of things to help us remember, and the best way, I think, is remembering together. I think in a community, it's much easier to gain hope again from remembering. Like, I always feel so encouraged when someone says, hey, this is what God's been doing in my life for the last three months, and then they start telling you the story, and you're just like, wow, yeah, and it teaches you new things about God. It reminds you about things you've had forgotten, and it gives you this encouragement and trust. But why would we do all this remembering work? What's the point of remembering who God is and what he's done and all the great things? What is the point? In verse 9, Jonah says it, salvation comes from the Lord. The whole point of paying attention and working on remembering this God is, so as a faith community, we can remind ourselves that salvation only comes through him. Only God can actually save us. Jonah says, those who cling to worthless idols forsake their mercy. The Hebrew word for idols can actually also be translated as vapors and vanities. And Jonah sort of wants us to make that like very subtle connection that like idols are just these like fleeting empty promises. They're very insubstantial. Like, they have zero power. They cannot save us. So, how do we remember this together? We need to, because sometimes we feel like we have been hurled into the sea, right? Sometimes we feel like we're down in the pit. Life is completely drowning us, and we are looking for salvation. And the world offers it in a lot of ways, Right? Back in the day, they would have said, like, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or whatever. But there's also really subtle ways that we try to save ourselves, like escapism, or perfectionism, or activism. We try to save ourselves, right? We pick an idol. For instance, so I get into these totally death-giving spirals with perfectionism, and sort of needing to control things, and then I get utterly disappointed, right, with myself and everyone else, because I haven't even reached the manageable standards. Like, we're not talking the impossible standards. Like, I haven't even reached this level, and if I can't even do that, like, I'm useless. But everywhere we can read or hear podcasts or a blogger or Instagrammers that are telling me I am in control of how much money I'll make. 
how successful I can be, how healthy I will be, and how perfectly my kids will turn out. And they want to give me the tools, the steps, and the secrets to creating my perfect life. And then they'll document their own perfect life to show you that it's possible, right? And taking control is supposed to be this really empowering thing. All you got to do is these 15 steps. But it's actually so condemning, right? Like, you get to step two and you're like, I can't do this. I, I can't. I will fail every time. I cannot be perfect. I will not look like the fake, probably fake Instagrammer's life anyway. Um, I won't succeed. My health could fail. My kids are not robots, so they have wills of their own. And yet we get told over and over again that our actions can save us. And they can't. These idols can't save us, but they put unbearable burdens on our backs, right? Because they show us no mercy. You failed at the 15 steps? Well, I got it. What's your problem? They will show us no mercy. We need God's help instead. Notice how Jonah doesn't feel like he has to clean it all up before he cries out for help. He asks for rescue without even repenting first. He doesn't say, I'm so sorry, God. This whole situation was super my fault. I didn't listen to you. Like, please, 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 please. Like, just, like, give me one more chance. He just asks for help. If you're stuck in a mess, especially of your own making, like Jonah's, and you feel like the shame is just going to drown you, and you don't deserve God's help, Jonah didn't. That's a lie. Salvation comes from the Lord. He gives it. He gives it to you. Even if it's been three weeks or months or 30 years, you just ask for help. And then, astonishingly, right, Jonah pro proclaims God's salvation with thanksgiving and praise before he actually gets out of the fish. So, this work of remembering his God and returning to this relationship with him already fills him with enough trust and hope to return to praise. He can feel slightly restored already before he's actually even safely ashore. And that's amazing. Like Jonah can place his confidence back in God and state a truth Salvation belongs to the Lord, even though he's not actually currently experiencing it. Nothing in the situation has changed, but he returns to this truth and can praise the Lord. And just remembering already starts to give him new life. That's amazing. So what's our work as the church with this third point? Salvation belongs only to the Lord. I think this is where we pause for some reassessment. At least for me, it's always a huge gut check. Like, where is my hope, actually? Is it in that bullet journal I started? Like, what salvation are we believing in right now with our actions? Sure, I might easily say God is my salvation. Like, I've heard that since I was a kid. But am I pouring my energy into trying to save myself in some other way? And I think that's a thing that's really difficult for us to see by ourselves, right? 
like it's our blind spot. It's the thing we're like, well, we're just clinging to this thing and it's fine. And I'm, I, it's not a big deal. Obsessively to do listing or whatever, you know, we need each other. We need people in our lives who can say, where do you see God in this? Or what are you hoping in, in this? To help us remind us of the astonishing reality that only God saves. Because we're so prone to forget it. I think another gut check is as a community. I think we can often get off-centered in the church in general. With believing salvation comes from us. You have to join our church, do church the way that we do church, and generally become like just like us. And then you can be saved too. Otherwise, your salvation is kind of suspect. We're not sure about you. Like, this is, like, then we're just turning into Jonah, right? He didn't want salvation for the Ninevites. They didn't look like him. Salvation comes from God. It comes to Jonah. It comes to the sailors in chapter 1. And it comes to the Ninevites later, spoiler alert. And they're all radically different people. (laughs) Sorry, guys. There's... (laughs) They're so different, right? They're all super different, and I don't think they all looked the same at the end or worshipped exactly in the same way after that. So the decision for salvation isn't up to us, and we got to let that go. And that's what Jonah doesn't do. Sorry, I'm giving away a lot of the ending. He doesn't want salvation for Nineveh. He doesn't want to allow God to be their savior, too. <sighs> yeah, so let's not be Jonah. We need to be able to just rest in God's mercy for ourselves and then also allow it for everyone else. And we can't do that on our own. And that's why we remember. We remember who God is, and we pray. We take that action. We pray that we can understand him more. We can ask, ask the Holy Spirit to remind us of the truths in our hearts over and over and over again so that they really, really start being embedded into our lives we can ask him to help change us. And that's how death turns into resurrection, right? This is how we're reborn. We stop placing our worth and value in the useless things, the worthless idols that destroy us, that show us no mercy, that make us forsake the mercy that we could have. And instead, we reorder our minds and our hearts and our lives by remembering that salvation comes from this majestic and mysterious and merciful God alone. So, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time to morning, this morning as a community. Thank you that we get to be an expression of your love um, to each other and to our neighborhood. Lord, we pray that... Um, this reminder of who Jonah was and what he did and also what he prayed, Lord, that this would resonate for us, that you would use the prayer that Jonah prayed to influence our own lives and to teach us new things and to remind us of the things that we thought we already knew. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for reminding us that through this passage that salvation comes from you alone. Give us both the desire and the tools to remember this.